You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show, if the transition from CERB to EI has you confused, well, you're not alone. We've got the 411. Also, school bus drivers are pleading for COVID-19 safety protocols right now. We begin, though, with the ever-changing back-to-school plans. Afwa Ba starts us off. Well, it's the final countdown for the return to school. So joining me today is Associate Director of York Region District School Board, Dr. Stephen Reed, and he's going to uh, be talking to me about the board's back-to-school reopening plan. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Great to be here. It is our pleasure. Okay, so uh, first off, can you briefly or explain to me the staggered start dates and essentially the plans that the board has prepared for both elementary and high school students? Uh, Certainly. So we are really working through challenging times and we've had some tight timelines, all boards across the province. And so the ministry has allowed us uh, to have a staggered start. What we're calling it is a supportive entry uh, because we really want to support the health and safety of our students. And so in doing so, what we're doing is we're inviting smaller groups of students so that they can practice some of the health and safety routines. And, And we believe that that's really going to support the wellness of our students in the end. And so for September 8th and 9th, only staff will be in our buildings and that will be uh, elementary and secondary and so what we'll be doing is putting the final touches to our classrooms and our schools decals across uh, around our schools uh, hand sanitizers in every classroom just finalizing table timetables whatever we need to do and um, and then uh, we will start to invite students in so for our kindergarten students uh, what we're going to be doing is on the 10th and 11th we'll be having only our year twos or senior kindergarten students in and, you know, those students, they were with us last year. They know some of the routines, but we're going to have new routes. So how to walk through the halls, where they're going to be with respect to recess, when they enter the classroom, that they're going to be washing their hands or using hand sanitizer. And so we're, we'll have some time to, to re-practice. And then the next week on the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th, there'll be an opportunity for half the JKs on the 14th and 16th to come in uh, with the senior kindergarten students and again to practice those routines they're going to be coming to school for the very first time and then the other group on the 15th and 17th they'll be attending so again time to practice new routines time to understand uh, understand and get to know their their, their their peers and as well as their teacher for the grades one to eight they'll be staggered also uh, eight to ninth staff only and then on the 10th 11th 14th and 15th we are again are going to split the classes in, in half and so half the students will be in on the 10th and the 14th half on the 11th and the 15th again practicing those routines so much of what students will have uh, encountered in school in previous years they'll counter that again we're looking to have fun learning environments for students uh, and uh, they'll have some new routines so for example for our grades 4 to 8 they'll be wearing their, their masks because that's uh, required for, for those students for kindergarten to grade 3 
agree, that'll be a decision that the parents will make uh, whether whether their child will be wearing a mask. Uh, then we move into secondary and uh, a bit of a similar process, but slightly different. Uh, they have lots of experience with school, but the one group that's making a big change is the grade nine. And so uh, for our grade nines on the 10th and 11th, again, they're already split in cohort, uh, cohort A and cohort B. So cohort A will, will attend on the 10th in the morning. That's for that 150 minutes block one. And we'll be doing some of the common uh, routines, inviting them into the school, getting to, to see some of the different places around the school, getting to see different staff, guidance and vice principals and principals. And then they'll go home in the afternoon and then they'll have some continued activity. And our grades 10 to 12 is in the afternoon. They'll have all of their classes in the afternoon, but it, it will be shortened so that they'll get all their classes, but just in, the, in a shorter period of time. And then on the 11th, it'll switch. So cohort B will attend grade nines. So they'll go through that same process. Grade 10s to 12s will have the afternoon. And then the uh, next week uh, on the 14th, all students uh, will be starting in the secondary with a regular schedule. A question maybe that parents might have. I know that they had to fill out um, a certain form in terms of letting the board know if their child was going to mm-hmm. either be in class or doing virtual learning. What happens if a parent changes their mind and they switch and they say, you know what, I want my child in class or vice versa. They're in class and they say, you know what, I want my child to do virtual learning. What does the board do then in that scenario? Right. And so the first thing we want to thank our families because we are at about uh, between 98, 99% of families have filled out that, uh, that information for us. And right now we have about 27,000 students in the elementary and about 9,000 students in secondary that will be attending uh, virtual. And so we know that parents are making uh, decisions during challenging times. And with that in mind, we've, we've let families know that we will attempt to support changes between the modes of teaching and learning if there is room. Uh, So we're looking to have smaller class sizes, for example, in our kindergarten to grade eight. And so to keep those those smaller classrooms, it's going to be difficult if if many, many students all of a sudden change their minds and vice versa for going to to the virtual. But we'll we'll make attempts where we can. If if it's becoming difficult uh, to to be able to facilitate that, we've also let families know uh, that they might have to wait to the end of a reporting period. So when students would usually receive a report card or for our secondary students actually at the end of the semester, because at that point, we might be able to do some re-timetabling or reconfiguration of the classrooms. And so, uh, so so that's the information that we provided for parents. And again, we'll, we'll do what we can when we can based on, on the size of classes. If a parent did choose the sort of virtual learning route, uh, what's some things that you can let parents know about in terms of uh, their child having access to technology, if they don't have that access to technology and they've opted for virtual learning, is there anything that the board is going to be doing to help? Absolutely. And last year when we were online, uh, we we provided about uh, just over 20,000 computers to our to our students. And then also for some of our students that didn't have internet, internet access, we provided that also. So if there are challenges uh, with, within the family and the, there's not that technology for the child, uh, we, we would suggest that they reach out to their homeschool principal and let them know they'll take down that information and we'll be looking to get that technology uh, to, to the 
their, their child. Uh, we're also looking to provide a questionnaire as we did last year so that parents can fill that out quickly and uh, we'd be able to set up a time uh, to be able to retrieve that technology uh, And because we want all students to ha have access. Uh, we're going to have, as I mentioned, many, many students accessing online and we also know that we'll have our secondary students accessing in the afternoon if they're going face-to-face -face in the morning. And then also what I would say for our families, if they have chosen to be online, that in many cases it will look different than it did last year. So uh, we are looking to have a greater amount of time that teachers will be spending in a scheduled timetable with students online. So that real-time interaction with teachers and their peers. And of course, I know parents will maybe still have some questions, maybe some comments, maybe still some concerns that they would have for a school coming back. I know it's been a couple of months, but uh, these, these things, getting back to school is inevitable. So where can parents go for more back-to-school information? Well, we'll be sending some of that. Actually, we're sending information to parents actually today about uh, the support of entry. And then next week, uh, principals will be sending further information so that parents know what days their child will be attending. Uh, so that will be important. But if they want information right now, they can always go to the, our website. And right on the front page, there's, there's an icon, either a picture or off to the left. You can see school reopening plan. And there, there's frequently asked questions. So often, if a parent has a question, someone may have already asked it, and we, we may have already answered it. So there's frequently asked questions there, as well as much more information about health and safety, about some of the routines and transportation. And uh, so that's, that's where I would suggest that parents start. Awesome. Well, this has been such a great discussion and such needed info for parents to have as schools reopen in September. Thank you so much for your time today, Associate Director of Education, Stephen Reed with the York Region District School Board. Thank you very much. Over to Tina Cortez now with a look at the back-to-school plan for the York Catholic District School Board. Thanks, Afwa. Mary Batista is Director-Designate at York Catholic District School Board. Mary, thank you for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Let's start with a brief explanation on the staggered start dates for both elementary and high school students here in York Region. Okay, so like many other school boards in Ontario, our elementary and secondary schools will have staggered entry dates. So in our board, both our elementary and secondary students will begin on September 10th with various divisions, grades beginning each day. So for example, in elementary, uh, grades 1 to 3 will begin September 10th, uh, our JK and SK students September 11th. On, the, on September 14th, we have our grade 7 and 8 students starting, and on the 15th, grades 4 to 6 students. And once students return to school on their designated start date, they will continue to come to school every day after that. Um, in secondary, um, for September 10th, we have our grade 9 orientation for cohort A, face-to-face uh, -face and cohort B and C virtual. On the 11th, we have grade 9 orientation cohort B and face-to-face -face and cohorts A and C virtual. And then on September 14th, um, all grades 9 to 12 cohort A will begin. Um, and B and C virtual, and on the 15th, grades 9 to 12, cohort B, face-to-face, -face, and cohorts A and C virtual. And so the reason for our staggered entry dates is because we want to ensure the smoothest possible transition for our families and students. Uh, this will allow staff to help students learn routines 
and begin become familiar with their new learning environment. Do you have a sense at this stage of the game how many students will be in, in the classrooms? So you know what? Uh, we are analyzing our survey results and uh, trying to clean up our data. And so I can't say exactly what that would look like, but we know that you know, one of our goals is to reduce uh, the physical or to to ensure that we have the physical distancing um, uh, between students in our classrooms. It seems like that is a bit of a stumbling block for many parents and why some perhaps are choosing to keep their students at home. Yes, it seems so. Uh, but like I said, we're analyzing our data. We will be looking at um, our school uh, organization. We will be reorganizing for sure because we take we need to take into consideration those students who have opted for the remote learning, and and so some of those classes um, the numbers will be reduced naturally because of that. Um, but even in cases where they the class size isn't reduced naturally. We're going to um, look at each classroom because, you know, in our board, we have classrooms of different sizes. There are some very large classrooms. I mean, I could think of some science rooms in our classrooms that, that are uh, very large classrooms. And so uh, what we're going to, to look at is how do we ensure that there is that physical distancing uh, between students. You mentioned remote learning. What if a child or a family doesn't have access to technology for virtual learning? How will the board help them? In terms of uh, um, the technology for virtual learning, Back in March, our board and schools provided technology to families who do not have devices for remote learning. And for September, we realized that additional families may need devices, and we're currently assessing our data so that we can do our best to provide the devices where needed. Um, we continue to assess the technology needed for in-school learning and for in-home remote learning to ensure that the devices and the internet bandwidth is adequate. Uh, students who require assistive technology will be provided the resources and support they need to continue their learning at home and or in school. And we also um, um, if, if we also ensured, ensured that if students and families uh, require technical support, um, our team is always available to assist, and uh, they can request this technical support by visiting our FAQ page on, on our website. And how will the board support students who perhaps have learning disabilities or special needs? Well, we are um, our core resource teachers, our EAs and EIs, um, they, they are ready to, to support students, and they will do so um, you know, at school, um, at times it will be virtual, um, especially for those students at home. Uh, it will be virtually, but in school, face-to-face, -face, the core resource teachers will be um, supporting them. Um, any students in self-contained classes uh, will be in their, in their classes. With their, with their teacher. So Mary, with school just around the corner, what are some of the final touches or things that the YCDSB is doing to prepare for kids returning to class this September? Are there changes to HVAC systems? Have additional teachers been hired? What can you tell us? 
So we are looking at, um, you know, the ventilation in our schools and our, our plant department is working on that as we speak. They are um, uh, visiting each school and ensuring that everything is uh, is uh, work operating properly um, and, and they are doing the required maintenance in those classes. Um, at teachers will be, you know, setting up their classrooms. Um, they're, they're already, some teachers are already uh, going into the school and, and as of August 31st, as of Monday, teachers will be able to enter the schools to prepare for uh, the reentry of students. Um, we do encourage our families uh, to read through our reentry plan and the FAQs on our, on our website because they do provide a lot of guidance and information for families in regards to our health and safety protocols that were put together in accordance to the Ministry of Education's guidance documents and in consultation with York Region Public Health. But I think um, I just would like parents to know that, well, to, to let their children know that their administrators, teachers, ECEs, secretaries, custodians, EAs, and all school staff are very much looking forward to welcoming them back. Well, that's good to hear for sure, and I'm sure parents would find some comfort at least in that. Where can parents go yes. for back-to-school information? Um, we do have our reentry plan is on our website as well as uh, frequently asked questions, so they could go there. Terrific. Mary Batista, Director-Designate at YCDSB, thank you for joining us on the feed. So if your student takes a school bus to class, drivers are very concerned right now about everyone's well-being. Tina Cortez with that story. Debbie Montgomery is the president of Unifor Local 4268 and represents thousands of school bus drivers. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Debbie. Thank you for having me. Let's get right to it. The staggered start of the school year, well, it's just around the corner, we think. How has the school bus experience been forced to change because of COVID-19? Well, the school bus experience, unfortunately, we're, we're hearing there's going to be little change. And um, that's pretty frightening to us. It's, it's quite concerning. Um, other than right now, um, a hodgepodge mixture from board to board, region to region, area to area. Um, we're not really clear who's getting what. We know there's, there's things out there. We know there's PPE out there, um, but no real clear directives. Um, we know that it appears to be the intent to fill the bus. Um, so, you know, obviously we're expected to be flexible. We'll need to be flexible. But we need some real answers real fast. Now, you've been quoted as saying drivers are worried that school buses could be the weak link in the safe return of students to classes. What do you mean by that? Well, without a consistent protocol. Um, again, we're, we're seeing um, operators and drivers who will work for several different school boards who all have different protocol, um, not really um, 
a consistent a consistency again with the masking of students, which you know public health has been really encouraging all people publicly to mask under certain um, environments, especially in confined, enclosed environments. I believe our concern truly is that uh, apparently under school bus regulations in Ontario, drivers aren't allowed to have barriers, so they, they lose the ability to have that protection. Um, and, and we see it everywhere we go now. You know, cashiers are serving us restaurants, stores, uh, people behind barriers. So um, these things, um, you know, will, will be denied us. The the other PPE that has been presented, again, we're, we're not clearly being told exactly what that looks like. And school buses, while we have many sizes, filling up the bus in a confined space is concerning. And by confined, I mean close quarters. I guess I should define that uh, as well. A 72-passenger school bus can carry just about the equivalent of three classrooms. And we don't have the square footage on those vehicles that three classrooms combined would have. So I think people would be very concerned. Parents would be very concerned to know that a specific example, a child who is in grade four is now going to be put into a classroom with grade threes and, 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 um, you know, full classroom, 60 kids in a classroom, 70 kids in a classroom, 80 kids in a classroom. That's what you're looking at here. So what are the next steps? Have you met with the school boards? Have you met with the province? No. We've requested and we're reaching out and we're certainly available um, to speak to our concerns um, because we think it's really important. Um, Again, we... Driver after driver has been communicating to me their concerns, even with the the cleaning of the bus that has been not cleaning, the sanitization. Drivers were always responsible to keep their vehicles neat and tidy. Apparently now it is being assumed that we will be responsible for deep cleaning and sanitizing those big vehicles uh, numerous times a day. We're not clear yet what chemicals we will be working with, what PPE is required for that. Again, we're in a very enclosed space. It's wonderful that, you know, you can say, well, you just roll down your windows. But we live in Canada. We're, we're going to be coming into inclement weather. Um, so some of these things just won't be practical. Um, so, you know, these are just... Uh, <laughs> Some of the few concerns we have, uh, the other thing drivers are concerned about is during these times and with all the special protocols out there, um, we're going to be required, and, and again, just to a little visual, imagine being alone with 72 children in a very large vehicle in rush hour traffic in inclement driving conditions. And, and, and having to worry about the kids as well, if they're sitting in their seats, if they're, if they're doing what they're supposed to do to keep them safe. And, and so these are, drivers are asking for help. They want help. We need an adult monitor. We can't have our eyes everywhere. Our first and foremost responsibility is providing a safe trip. And now we've been added another element, and it's an element that we don't even have specifics on yet. Now, the province has said that they're spending millions so that, you know, additional drivers can be hired, that there can be spacing in the buses. So what's happening in that regard? 
Well, I do know that, that um, bus companies are, are training new drivers, and kudos, because we believe we need that as well. You can't just go to a parking lot and say, I'll take that one, that one, that one. It's not like buying a new car. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're a little bit difficult to get. They're a major expense, and school bus drivers aren't a dime a dozen either. Well, I was going to ask you, are, are you losing drivers that maybe, you know, they're thinking this isn't worth the risk? On so many levels. Absolutely. And again, they want to return to work. And I think we see even the ones right now who are saying, I can't come back, I can't afford to. I'm either vulnerable by age, vulnerable by a pre-existing medical condition, vulnerable because someone in my immediate circle, a family member is vulnerable. Um, you know, if they felt reassured that their health and safety at work um, was was really being taken care of, um, I don't think we would have the as many people leaving. We're going to lose a lot of really good people, I think, out of this. Um, so it's 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 concerning. I mean, none of us are irreplaceable. However, you know, um, good experienced drivers are not easy to come by. So what are the next steps here? Where do you go from here? Well, we're, we're asking for a meeting with the Minister of Education, the Premier. We need to get those concerns out there. We need to get them addressed. And a little message, we're not going away. We're, we're going to stand by the things we're looking for because we feel it's important to kids, to our drivers, to our communities, to families. I go back to um, we don't want to be that weak link. We don't want to be responsible for transmission, and that weighs very heavy on drivers. And what's your message to parents who are maybe reluctant to put their child back on the school bus this September? I think my message to parents is, you know, we understand, and our drivers understand, the need for children to get back to school. And and what I would ask parents on behalf of all our drivers is help us keep your kids safe. That's our goal. We, it's, it's not that we don't want to return to work. We do. But we want the children to be safe. We want your children to be safe. And we're willing, very willing, to work towards solutions that will accomplish that as best we all can. Debbie Montgomery is the president of Unifor Local 4268 and represents school bus drivers. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Debbie. Keep us posted. Thank you. I will. People for Education is an independent, nonpartisan, charitable organization whose slogan is public education, public good. One of its founders and the executive director, Annie Kidder, joins us on the feed right now with the group's take on the province's ever-changing back-to-school plans. Annie, we're almost down to the wire, although the finish line keeps on changing. What is good about the plans and what needs to be changed or corrected in your view? Well, um, that's a very hard question. There, uh, you know, there has been an effort to provide more funding uh, for people like nurses and for personal protective equipment, the infamous PPE. Um, there's some funding for special education, for custodians, for cleaning, for school buses, and a bit of funding for teachers and support staff. I I think or we think in our organization there's still not enough uh, in terms of, of funding for for staff and it's in the funding for staff that 
I think more parents could be reassured that the class sizes were going to be small enough and that there would be lots of supports for students, whether they were learning online or learning in school. So the Prime Minister announcing earlier this week an injection of $2 billion spread across the country, but the bulk of it will be going to Ontario because we have the highest number of students. Is it in everyone's best interest that the province spends that money properly, and how should they? Well, I, I, the province has now said how they're going to spend the, their, their, their first half of the money that they're going to get in total, I think about $780 million. Um, but they get the money, half of it now and half of it, uh, at the beginning of the next year. They, they have said they're going to spend, uh, quite a lot of it on, um, HVAC systems. People are really worried about, um, ventilation. So they're going to spend more of it on operations, on cleaning on custodians, on ventilation systems, still not the majority of it on teaching and support staff. And, but it is, it's a very good sign, I think, that the federal government has recognized that this is a national problem. Um, and the, the prime minister in his announcement did keep saying over and over, I know this is a provincial jurisdiction. We're not trying to interfere in provincial jurisdictions, but that parents in particular, he, he mentioned a lot, um, had uh, been contacting the government and, and they were, parents were, were concerned and worried and that this was a partly an answer to that. I think one of the things that that shows is that parents do have an important voice and they, they should continue to let it be heard. I think it's also, I think the other reason that it's important and hopeful is that um, it's, it's a kind of recognition by everybody that schools are really important to all of us and we have to make sure that they can work uh, well and provide all students, no matter what uh, the sort of situation of their families, with a chance for success. You know, it's interesting, class size and mask wearing, they seem to be two of the biggest concerns on all fronts, from all people, from teachers, from students, and particularly from parents. What's your stand on that? Well, I, I, the, the reason that class size and mask wearing are, are, are named as the important things to everybody is we've been told over and over and over by all of our health institutions and the medical experts uh, that physical distancing and wearing masks and washing our hands are, are the are the ways to combat the spread of this virus. So one of the things that's been hard is that we read about it, we read about all the strict rules for bars, um, and then we, we haven't necessarily seen the same uh, kinds of policies for schools. And class sizes, uh, the, the discussion about class size is important not because people just want smaller classes, but if you have a smaller class, then you can keep that bubble, so-called small, and also you can spread kids out and spread spread the staff out. So I, I think that everybody's looking for those things um, because we, again, because we've been told that those are, those are really important components. That's why um, that that's why to us spending funding on staff uh, is is would be incredibly important. Uh, we're still not quite seeing enough uh, resources going in that direction to ensure that in elementary schools in particular, uh, the class sizes can uh, be significantly reduced. Is there time now, between now and when school begins, and I know that there are staggered entry dates, is there time to pull it all together to more satisfaction? 
Well, it, it is it is worrying, and it's a little bit frustrating that we it is now the end of August, and we're still seem to be on an emergency footing. People for Education has been calling for many months uh, for a provincial task force with all of the stakeholders, you know, teachers, principals, school board directors, trustees, parents, students, um, early childhood educators, everybody at the tables in order to make a plan. Um, so it's you know it is kind of upsetting that we're, we're still kind of cobbling things together. I think that this new federal funding is, is another op- opportunity, in quotation marks, for us to slow things down and figure out how to get it right. Um, we definitely have recommended a very slow, gentle start to school so that uh, teachers and support staff have a chance uh, to be in schools for at least a week to figure out all the health and safety stuff, to talk to each other, to, um, you know, think about how they're going to work with students who will have all, you know, been, who have all lived through what we're all living through, which is living in a pandemic. Some of them, uh, a lot of experts have said their mental health is going to have been affected, so how are we going to plan for that? And it's just making sure that this return to school is slow enough that it's not, okay, everything's back to normal, now let's sit down and learn our times tables, but much more let's take the time to assess where kids are emotionally and educationally. Let's make sure that we have the supports in place to deal with or help kids if they're struggling to stay mentally healthy and and slowly introduce all of the other components of learning. But also keeping them safe from COVID-19. I mean, we've got to get this right at the beginning. Annie, People for Education, as mentioned, is an independent nonpartisan organization. So you don't run the risk of insulting or alienating yourself from the government. What do you say to them about what they should be doing? Well, we have said to them, um, you know, very clearly, based on the evidence, it is important that class sizes are small. It is, we, with people from the University of Toronto and Ryerson and other experts, wrote a paper on that, a gentle reopening for schools with lots of recommendations. Um, so we will continue to, to talk about that and also to point out that another really big concern has to do with equity, um, that for some families it's possible for them to support their kids learning online or it's possible for them to even opt out and you know, hire their own teachers, but for many families that's not possible. So our our next big area of concern is particularly high school students who will be learning, most of them in Ontario will be doing half of their learning online, um, that we need uh, staff to support them. So they need to have access to child and workers or guidance counselors or even student teachers. We can't just uh, leave them on their own because kids who were already struggling are, are, are may fall through the cracks uh, if they're left on their own. Who are you advocating for? For students and for the public education system itself. I think that all of us um, need to know that this is a core part of our democracy, the core component of society. This is the whole next generation that we're educating in our schools, and we should all really, really care uh, about whether or not they're strong and, and able to do their job. Annie Kidder, People for Education, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much.
Time for our first break. When we come back, changing from CERB to EI, Minister Deb Schultz is standing by to help. That's next on the feed, only on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Millions of Canadians have relied on federal government money to help them get through this pandemic. Tina Cortez now with an update on the transition from CERB to EI. Deb Schultz is the MP representing the riding of King Vaughan. She is also the Minister of Seniors. Minister Schultz, thank you for joining us once again on the feed. Thank you very much, Tina, for having me on the show. Now, there have been changes recently to the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, and EI. Can you take us through these adjustments, especially for those who rely on the weekly payments? Absolutely. So we know that uh, Canadians have shown tremendous strength in the face of COVID-19. And as we begin to safely reopen our economies and businesses, our government's committed to supporting Canadians. We've been helping businesses and workers get back on their feet. We'll make sure Canadians have the income supports they need. It's been you know, exceptional benefits at an exceptional time. However, we are now in the process of transitioning back to our more traditional established mechanisms of support and addressing you know, uh, those, uh, you know, those uh, extra um, requirements to ensure that all Canadians get the help that they need to stay safe and stay healthy. So you're absolutely right. Um, we are now that the Canada Emergency Response Benefit will be available for an additional four weeks as we transition Canadians to the next phase of our government's economic plan, recovery plan. So we are, we are um, providing new flexibility to the employment insurance program for Canadians to qualify and receive a minimum of 400 per week for at least 26, uh, 26 weeks. We're working with the provinces and territories to make sure Canadians can receive the EI benefits and also have access to skills training and employment supports to help them get back to work. We know how important that is. We are freezing EI premiums for two years, and this will help employers and employees uh, with the premiums. We are introducing three new income support benefits that will support workers that are unable to work, are not eligible for EI, and are sick or self-isolating or need to provide care or support for a child or family member or dependent. So a little bit about uh, those new programs. Uh, it's, one is called the Canada Recovery Benefit, mm-hmm. and it will provide $400 uh, per week for up to 26 weeks for workers who are self-employed or not eligible for EI and who still require income support, who are looking, at, looking for work uh, but are, are unable to uh, uh, get employment at this time. We are also uh, providing a Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit for those that don't have uh, sick sick pay or sick benefits within their their own work, and that will provide 500 per week for up to two weeks for workers who are sick or must self-isolate for reasons related to COVID-19. 
and we're also providing a Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit that will provide $500 per week for up to 26 weeks per household for eligible Canadians unable to work because they need to care for a child because of a closure of a school or a daycare because of COVID-19 or a family member with a disability or dependent because their day program or care facilities closed due to COVID-19 or a, a child or family member with a disability or a dependent who's not attending school, daycare, or other care facilities under the advice of a medical professional uh, due to being high risk if they, if they should con- contract COVID-19. So we're pretty excited about, uh, you know, having uh, Canadians transition back to EI uh, and with additional enhancements to the EI program and also the additional measures to help those that are not eligible for EI don't, and don't have sick, sick benefits at work. Now, Minister Schultz, you represent the riding of King Vaughan. What are you hearing from the constituents within York Region right here in King Vaughan? Well, I'm, I'm hearing obviously people are are happy to start seeing the economy open back up and get back to work. They are right now very focused. Uh, many with many families with young children are very focused on going back to work and the uh, you know the measures that schools are implementing to be able to keep their children safe and and then the impacts that that will have on their families. Uh, but and I've I've been talking with businesses. Uh, they are hopeful. Things are moving back to more normal. People are spending money again. People are getting out and about and uh, and most people are doing it safely. It's really important that everything that we're doing, we focus on the health and safety of our neighbors and uh, and that, you know, I know businesses are stepping up to make sure that they're putting in measures and we as citizens need to make sure we're doing our part so that everybody can stay safe and we can get back to work and uh, and not overwhelm our healthcare system. Now, obviously, the benefits that you spoke about, you know, would be necessary and welcome to so many, but the benefits are taxable, the benefits can't go on forever. What's your message for those who worry about what's after that? What do we do? Well, uh, this is one of the reasons that we are transitioning back to our more traditional uh, mechanisms to support. We know they have served Canadians well. The EI has been a great program and it's been incredibly helpful. But we've also been sure to bring in those elements that are that are important uh, to get to address COVID because, you know, that the um, there are unique circumstances that we need to address, like people staying home when they feel sick uh, and not going to work. That is something that we really do not want people to be putting others at risk and if they don't have sick benefits then that is a problem. So this is why we're bringing in the additional measures to make sure that we're there for Canadians as they, they you know, wrestle with uh, the implications of the pandemic. However, uh, you know, make sure that, that you know, we get back to normal as fast as we can or our new normal of, of coping with the pandemic. So those new measures will be in place for a year. They're coming into effect when we uh, get back to Parliament and pass legislation at the uh, September, uh, September 27th, they'll come into effect and they'll be in place for one year. So I know, I know people are anxious, but, uh, you know, we, we hopefully will be in a much better uh, position uh, in a year from now uh, and we will be able to then see what measures Canadians need to stay safe and they can be sure the government will be there for them. You're also the Minister for Seniors and that group of the population has been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. How are you supporting them? So um, we do recognize that while seniors have still been receiving their benefits, their um, 
CPP, Canada Pension Plan, their uh, OAS benefits, uh, old age security benefits, and guaranteed income supplement. They are still uh, seeing additional costs, impacts uh, through staying safe at home rather than, you know, um, potentially uh, going to their regular grocery store. They may be getting deliveries. So there's additional costs involved. So in, in April, we uh, implemented an, um, a top-up for the GST top-up. And uh, on average, uh, a senior would have received, a single senior would have received about $375. And on average, couples would have received about $510. That was in April. In July, we provided them additional support through the old age security. If you receive old age security, you would have got $300. These are all tax-free, so so that's extremely helpful uh, to have that. They didn't have to apply. They just got it automatically in their bank accounts or through check. If you are on guaranteed income supplement, you got an additional $200. So just to summarize, uh, a low-income uh, senior couple on guaranteed income supplement would have received over $1,500 from the government tax-free automatic payment to help them with the additional cost of the pandemic. We also put... Um, uh, I'm just trying to, the, the sum uh, is, is a very large because it keeps changing because we, we do additional money, but uh, we put uh, $500 million into community groups to support vulnerable Canadians, including seniors. I uh, had an additional support of $200 million for New Horizons uh, projects, New Horizons for Seniors projects. That's community groups helping seniors directly in their communities get groceries, get access to the internet, uh, run programs virtually. It was uh, very exciting, uh, the the creativeness of community groups to reach out, make sure seniors were not isolated. We also gave $9 million, uh, to United Way Centrate across Canada to, to get that money into local organizations with grocery delivery, food, medication, outre- outreach efforts. So it's a tremendous amount of support that's been going out there focused on seniors and uh, be very proud of how communities have stepped up to help, help seniors in their community as well as the government. Minister Scholl, just before we wrap up, you know, we often ask on this show, you know, we can't, we don't know for sure what's going to happen in terms of the second wave, but what's your sense, what's your gut in terms of our preparedness to handle a possible second wave this fall or this winter? So that's a very good question. It is why the government has put $19 billion of funding uh, to the provinces and territories to assist them with a safe restart as we move forward. Because you're absolutely right, the pandemic is still uh, underway. Uh, the virus is still amongst us. And, uh, you know, um, we are still, you know, a, a bit of a ways off for a vaccine and we're still working on what does the effectiveness of the vaccine look like. So we are going to have to learn to cope uh, with the pandemic and to uh, stay safe as we move around and get back to our, our lives and get back to an economy that is working for all Canadians. So we, you know, we've put uh, 4.28 billion in testing, contact tracing, and data management. Very important for us to be able to track the disease and make sure that we isolate it quickly and uh, and let those know that may have been exposed to be aware and and take measures. Uh, we boosted more, uh, you know, 700 million more on top of the 500 million that we put to 
provinces and territories to improve the healthcare system and make sure we have capacity there. Addressing 500 million for mental health, substance use, and homelessness. An additional 740 million for vulnerable populations. I can go on and on, but we've, we've looked at where the issues of, of concern are. Access to protective equipment. We are $7.5 billion uh, invested in getting protective equipment and making sure Canada has a supply that it needs. We have, you know, $1.1 billion that we're putting forward with a, with a sick leave uh, program for those who don't have access to sick leave. We've got $6.25 million for childcare for to support workers going back to work, two point, two point, oh, sorry, $2 billion to municipalities to help them to be able to prepare for, uh, you know, people going back to work, locations opening, uh, services supplied to make sure that they can be safe and, and modify their, uh, their environment so it's safer for people. And $1.8 billion for transit. We know how important transit is for people to move around, um, and we need to make sure that they can stay safe and keep the environment safe for, for passengers. If our listeners want more information on the government programs, including the CERB, where can they go? Um, best place for up-to-date information would be Canada.ca forward slash COVID-19. That is updated regularly with uh, recent measures and programs, uh, safety tips, and, uh, and I think that's the best place for, for Canadians to go for up-to-date information. Minister Deb Schultz, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much. Really a pleasure. When we come back, how to enjoy the unofficial end of summer vacation in the new normal. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed on 1059 The Region. So just for fun now, let's leave all of our troubles behind and take a little road trip through beautiful southern Ontario and enjoy some of the sights and sounds of the last few weeks of summer. Hot sun, blue skies, green grass, white sand, and cool, crisp rivers and lakes. Ah to help us get where we want to go. Jim Byers, the author of Ontario Escapes, 19 great places to visit right now. Jim, thanks for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. It's always great to talk about uh, my home province and uh, some of the great places I've been able to explore as a, as a travel writer over uh, the last, oh gosh, 10 or 15 years. And it is important that we all, you know, look in our own backyard when we're journeying at this point. And, and for many people, that is the only option. So let's fasten our seatbelts. You get behind the wheel. I'm your passenger. And everyone listening is in the back seat right now. <laughs> so here we go. Let's begin with southwestern Ontario. Yeah, you know, southwestern Ontario is a, is a really kind of, I wouldn't just call it undiscovered because obviously people know it, but, you know, it doesn't maybe get the, 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 the attention of some other places, but I really love the whole North Shore of, of Lake Erie, you know, great beaches, uh, great towns like Port Dover. Um, there's a guy there uh, who plants palm trees on the beach in the summer. There's a, a great little winery uh, called uh, the Frisky Beaver, and how Canadian is that? And there's a um, uh, another winery that's run almost entirely by women called Burning Kill. That's really terrific. Let's also talk about maybe a little bit further west and maybe up slightly north a bit, the shores of Lake Huron. A lot of people are drawn to it, but they don't really know where to go and, and you know, how to enjoy Lake Huron. Yeah, you know, again, you've got a, a great town in um, Southampton, 
uh, in Huron Beach is terrific. Uh, King Cardin's lovely. You know, when they're uh, when they're able to, they do a sunset uh, a march with a, a like Scots uh, Scots parade uh, kilts and, and and bagpipes and the whole thing at, at sunset, I believe, or uh, on Saturday night. Uh, that's a great town. Uh, the Pinery is a wonderful spot, and I love the town of Grand Bend. That's a, the quintessential Ontario surf town. Let's turn the car around and head now east and to the central part of southern Ontario and even down into Niagara region. What tickles your fancy about those destinations? Well, you know, there's there's so many great places. I mean, you mentioned Niagara Falls, and I was just there uh, I was there this week. And, you know, they are practicing social distancing on the Hornblower cruises to the base of the falls. Same thing with the Niagara Skywheel. So those are great. If, if people want, you know, maybe a little bit more quiet and restful spot, I, I highly recommend the waterfalls around uh, Dundas and Hamilton. Two Falls and Webster Falls are both extremely beautiful, uh, especially in the fall. And, of course, you can't go wrong with Muskoka. You know, you can you can go out. If you don't have your own boat, you can run a canoe or a kayak. Uh, in Bracebridge, there's a company called Live Outside, and you can cruise to your heart's delight down the Muskoka River and, and enjoy the fall colors there, too. You know, at this time of year, there are often festivals in towns, and there are wine-tasting celebrations at, at vineyards and wineries. Is that still a go through COVID-19? Not so much the festivals. Uh, wineries are open, and again, they're practicing, you know, distancing, so you're not crowded around the bar the, the way you might be, uh, but there are options you can do that. Um, one of the newer wineries, actually, is uh, is in Peterborough, near uh, just south of Peterborough, called the Rolling Grape, and they do a really nice job. It's, it's one of the first um, uh, grape-growing wineries as opposed to fruit-growing uh, uh, wineries in uh, in the Peterborough Wilkes area. So you have taken us now through to the more eastern part of southern Ontario, so let's spend a little more time there. You mentioned Peterborough, but there are so many hidden gems in and around that area. What what do you like, and what would we like? I, I think the most surprising place I've been anywhere in Ontario just completely blew me away, and this was about a year ago, pretty much a year ago today, and uh, I was uh, asked to come up to Peterborough uh, co-authors and explore a little bit, and she mentioned a place, uh, the woman I was working with mentioned a place called Zim Art Rice Lake Gallery, and I'm driving down this little dirt road, and you know, there's a silo over here and a farmer's field, and, and this little one-lane road, and then you drive up, and there's a woman, uh, Fran Fernley, I believe is her name, and she runs something called the Zimbabwean uh, Zimart uh, Gallery, and every, uh, she brings uh, stone carvings over from Zimbabwe at great expense, puts them in this beautiful garden with you know, daisies and flowers and a little pond, and then every year she brings an artist over from Zimbabwe to do uh, workshops and explain how it's all done. It's really magnificent in the middle of a bunch of farmer's fields near Rice Lake. That is the most surprising place I've seen. Let's head north now, shall we? And my first thought is always when I think about beautiful sunsets and crystal clear water, I think about Algonquin and that area. How is it managing in terms of tourism and attraction through COVID-19? It's been very popular, as you can imagine. Uh, all of the provincial parks have been very, very difficult to uh, to book overnight stays in. Um, if someone wants to get to, say, Dorset and, and, and get that great view of, of, of the fall, I would imagine you, know, you really want to go there during the week. And the same thing with Algonquin. And I think, you know, at this point, uh, you know, most of the cottages in and around there are all booked for the, for the summer and probably early into the fall. So uh, if somebody can get away during the week, I would advise that's probably the best time to get up and, uh, and enjoy the, uh, you know, the marvelous views there in Algonquin Park. Let's break a little sweat, shall we? A lot of people like active destinations where they can go canoeing to their heart's content or they can swim forever or they can, uh, you know, hike and, and, and trailblaze. What, what would be something that you might recommend and that is accessible as we are starting to think about saying goodbye to summer? 
summer? Yeah, you know, uh, again, a really accessible spot uh, I would mention in was Hardy Lake uh, Provincial Park, which is on the road between Bala and, uh, and Gravenhurst. Really beautiful walk. It's only a couple of kilometers, maybe five or six. Not overly difficult. Uh, there's no cottages on Hardy Lake, so it's uh, it's really quite beautiful, and you get a, that real sense of serenity and, and tranquility. Uh, Warsaw Caves, uh, again, near Peterborough, is a, a great conservation area with a beautiful view of, of, of uh, the Indian River, I believe. That's a really great spot. Petroglyphs Provincial Park is not only great for hiking and uh, uh, and enjoying, but you know you get these ancient uh, rock carvings that were carved by First Nations people, and that's a that's a very uh, a lovely spot to go. So much of what you've just talked about has remained secret. You know, a lot of people before COVID nineteen would travel beyond the borders of Ontario to take their vacation, their their time away through the summer. Some may be forced to stay in Ontario. Others may see it as a chance to explore Ontario. What is the most interesting and exciting place for you, Jim Byers? I am a big fan of, of Muskoka um, and, and that whole area. Uh, the other area that I that I really, really love uh, a lot and have gotten to know a little bit over the last couple of years is kind of around Gray County. So a little bit north of Collingwood, Meaford is a great little town. There's some fantastic hikes up there. Uh, Lion's Head uh, uh, Lookout is one of the most marvelous things and surprising things you'll see in Ontario. You hike an hour or so and you're, I think, even a couple of hundred meters up above uh, Georgian Bay on these limestone cliffs and you're looking down on water but it looks almost like the Greek islands. It's that shade of blue and aquamarine. It's really outstanding. Who knew? I didn't know. I just think that's marvelous. So let me ask you how people who are inspired by what they've just heard from you, what's your best advice in terms of, of searching and booking and not being disappointed? Well, I mean, you really do have to book early. It's, uh, you know, I, I think it's also very important and uh, to let people know that, you know, not, not everyone might be as comfortable as, as you or I or some other folks with the idea of traveling right now and not everyone is necessarily receptive to having people come. I, I think it is important to, uh, uh, you know, respect the locals, obviously wear your mask, practice social distancing, but just don't assume that everyone is really welcome, uh, uh, welcoming visitors right now. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I would advise especially uh, trying those little quieter places maybe that uh, it's not going to be running into people as much. And, uh, although, you know, there, there's obviously, you know, people want to explore the cities too, but I think some of the nature spots are the, are the places that people are really looking for right now. Your newest book is Ontario Escapes, 19 Great Places to Visit Right Now. By the way, it's $4.99. And do you know what, Jim? A roadmap of Ontario costs more than your book. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Thanks uh, Thanks for joining us on the feed, Jim Byers. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.